but every person I've ever introduced had a LinkedIn page. So, you know, I, I, I've never introduced someone to like the secret hermit who lives on the mountain who takes a password to reach them. <laughs> every person I've ever introduced wants to meet people. It's just, there's 8 billion people in the world. Success. Eyes that mock our sacred institutions. Bedroom eyes, they call them in a bygone day. Sex desire is the most powerful of human desires. When driven by this desire, men develop keenness of imagination, courage, willpower, persistence, and creative ability unknown to them at other times. So strong and impelling is the desire for sexual contact that men freely run the risk of life and reputation to indulge in. When harnessed and redirected along other lines, this motivating force maintains all of its attributes of keenness of imagination, courage, etc., which may be used as powerful creative forces in literature, art, or in any other profession or calling, including, of course, the accumulation of riches. Napoleon Hill. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I am here with my most amazing hot guest, Michael Whitehouse. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited. Excellent. Give us a 5,000 foot view of who you are and what you'd love to do. Uh, well, 5,000 feet, I'm very small. <laughs> uh, but the, the bigger view, I like connecting people. Um, I'm, I'm good at two things, making connections and expressing which probably includes like writing and speaking and making a nuisance of myself. Um, and once I figured out that I'm good at those two things and much better at those things than everything else, I've started focusing on mostly doing those two things. And um, that's when I started like making money and having a business. So the whole guy who knows a guy concept is built around my networking concierge business where people hire me to make introductions for them. And then I express through a few different podcasts um, one of the newest of which is the Neurodiversity Superpowers podcast, where I celebrate people who are successful because of and not in spite of their non-standard and customized brains. Wait, customized, that sounds like cyberpunk, um, but they're non-standard brains. And um, so you know, I do that. And yeah, of how do you I wrote, customize your brain? Well, not so much customized, <laughs> or just non-standard configuration. There you go. Yeah. Very big words for somebody whose elementary school teachers thought you would never amount to anything. Yeah, that's when I got out of elementary school. Actually, yeah, I, I went to first grade, uh, had a miserable experience, and my parents pulled me out of there and put me in a private school called Sudbury Valley, which has no grades and no structured curriculum. Um, and basically, the kids find their own educational path, and it was amazing for four years. Wow. How'd yeah. you do? I mean, obviously, uh, well, but... It, it seemed to go pretty well, yeah. Yeah, and what's, what's interesting is is, you know, you think about the educational system, we got, you got the tests and the structure and the grades and the system, permanent records. And Sudbury Valley is, it's a school that the entire building's a library. So there's, there's, it's a library throughout every room in the building. It's an old mansion that was converted into a school. There's a bunch of staff members who so each went have to Hogwarts. different, uh, kind of, uh, who <laughs> each have different special, you know, some have science background, some have history background. Um, so if there's a class you want to take, you find the staff member who knows that thing and you arrange for a class to be taught. And then they put it out there and anyone else is interested takes that class too. I probably took all of four classes in four years. 
Um, but I came out of four years, what would have been second to fifth grade. And at first we were thinking, oh no, I didn't do the academics and maybe I'm behind. When they did the actual test to see where I'd land academically. So after fifth grade, usually comes sixth. They said academically you could jump to eighth, but socially you'll probably be in trouble if at your age you go to eighth grade. So we're gonna put you in sixth with your, your grade cohort for, for social reasons. Um, but so left to my own devices, I learned faster than public school would have taught um, because I was allowed to bounce off the walls on my own, which is funny because I don't often think that far back. It's hard to remember before the pandemic. But when I when I think all the way back there is- Let me get this straight. Kindergarten, grade one, grade eight, pandemic nope. business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you're much. what, 10? Yeah. I, I sometimes say I feel like I need like, like a Ouija board to remember anything before 2020. Cause that was, you know, I did like a past life regression therapist to remember 2019. Cause You're my nice life one. is so different from then. Um, but, but no, but it was really a, a stroke of luck that my parents happened to know about that school. I happened to live near it and have that opportunity. But yeah, I, I think if I'd been, if I'd been stuck in the regular public school environment, as I was in the eighties with that very, you know, desks in rows kind of mindset, uh, either would have been expelled or ended up in jail or who knows what would have happened. It probably wouldn't have gone well. So Sudbury Valley, while I don't think about it much, is definitely um, pretty crucial in the formation of who turned out to be me. Well, and I always find it fascinating because I think if I was left to my own demise, <laughs> we all know what happened after school. So it's probably best that I was contained for at least five hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, that, <laughs> but I was always, always going, Hey, what about this? And how does that work? And they're like, Oh, you'll learn that next year. You'll learn that in university. You'll learn that. I never did learn. And I was like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> it sounds like one of those, like, uh, go, go ask your mother, uh, go ask your father. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that. Yep. Yeah. But, but that's, yeah. And, and the thing is with Sudbury Valley, I, so, so their whole thing is, you know, find your own path. There's, there's no concept of age at Sudbury Valley officially. So, you know, five-year-olds are taking classes with 14-year-olds. Um, and now they do tend to cohort together, you know, six-year-olds and 12-year-olds don't have a lot to talk about generally. But in terms of like taking a class, they're all together, which means most kids will rise to the level of maturity you put them in. So seven, eight, nine-year-olds, if they want to take a history class and it's mostly teenagers, they're going to try to adapt into that environment. You know, if you think back to history, there were there were like nine-year-olds who ended up taking out of the family when their parents died and someone had to run the farm. So they nine-year-old kid becomes the man of the house and he's running the farm. So like I, we, we've infantilized children and by children, I mean people under 25 uh, in our culture. But, you know, somebody was great for that. And then of course I went back into public school and Why? I've got this idea of, of, you know, I have autonomy and thought and, um, and they're like, do this, do that. And they're like, but that doesn't make any sense. And they're like, why are you talking? Why I told you what to do and you're still talking. Why are you, why is your mouth moving when you should be doing what we tell you? Um, so I, there was a little bit of an adjustment period coming out of uh, Sudbury Valley into public school. But unfortunately the high school I went to after three years of adjusting was a pretty decent high school and I did well enough. Um, How come you went back to public? Uh, parents ran out of money. Oh. That happens. Yeah, because uh, public school is free and Silver Valley is not, not. free. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's hilarious. Cause I also remember I had four older siblings, like six, seven, nine, and ten years older than me. And my brother brought home a geometry test one day. So I would have been in like grade three. He would have been in grade nine, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Um, and I got 70% on it. Side on C. Yep. And he was looking at me like, you're such a bad child. <laughs> this he, is he, easy. You want to be in high school. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's possible. Skills like that, you might have mapped something. Yeah, I might have. But you, you might, know, yeah. They, um, no, they kept telling me I'll learn that later, and I never did. So I just. Yep. Yeah. Just, and, and, you know, and it's wait. interesting, um, you know, yeah, you, so you made me walk down interesting memory paths. Because um, <laughs> I think, so after I, I went to college, I went to UMass Amherst, and then after that, I graduated and um, basically didn't have the attention span to get a job because, you know, the job search process, you got to find a job and you got to fill out all these things and fill out the application and write the thing. And I'm like, ah, this is stupid. I could just start a business, right? <laughs> That's pretty easy, starting a business. Um, and I was fortunate, privileged, I think is the word, that I had a family that had money to invest in me. Um, and I was apparently had the gift of expression back then too, because I convinced them to invest $40,000 in me. And I opened a game store knowing really nothing about business. I thought I knew something, but I really, in retrospect, knew like running a business I, is easier than doing applications. Yeah, I, apparently <laughs> with a business, like you're supposed to make more money than you spent. That's a key part of it. And if you're not like you, you should be urgently trying to do so. And I learned that when I was like 32, unfortunately, I started the business when I was 22, um, <laughs> And so it was called Phoenix Games. It was wildly successful, except for not making any money. It was a, a community space. Um, you know, it was a game store. People hung out there and it was important to them, which meant that two or three years in, when it was clear it wasn't going to make money, I couldn't just say this business isn't working and walk away because it was like really important to a lot of people. Uh, what I ended up doing was three years in, um, it got to the point where I needed to pay my bills. I had no income which meant I had to go get a job, which means I couldn't spend uh, 77 hours a week in a store. And I called a community meeting and I said, hey guys, uh, so good news and bad news. The store makes enough money to pay its own expenses, breaks even, can't pay me. I need to go work, which means the only way this place can possibly stay open is if all of you are willing to pitch in for free, you'll never be paid. This will never be profitable. If you're willing to pitch in for free to run a store, um, and I was quite sure how this was going to go. They're going to be like, well, you did it your best, Michael. Thanks so much. Uh, good luck with your next endeavor. And I was very surprised when their answer was, in fact, okay, what do you need us to do? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I had no plan for if they said yes. I was assuming it would be a no. I was trying to give myself the easy way out. I didn't have any bylaws in place. I didn't have a structure in place. So suddenly a whole bunch of gamers had the opportunity to take over a game store they weren't financially invested in. That went exactly as well as you'd expect. Because <laughs> um, they've been watching me for three years, all of them thinking they could do it better. And yeah. then with no bylaws to determine like who was in charge and how things were supposed to run, technically I had veto over everything, but every time I exercised it, people were like, what? Oh, we're doing all the work. Who are you? Ah. Um, but we did three years later, did turn into an actual nonprofit that ran for 10 more years. Wow. Entirely volunteer run. So I can't say I totally failed. It just never no. like paid my bills. Um, and that taught me a whole bunch of wrong lessons. Like I shouldn't be too aggressive. I shouldn't assert myself too much because I'll lose my friends. Um, mm-hmm. And that entrepreneurship is a dangerous path and I should go the safe path of getting a job. 
So I spent 10 years being broke and going from miserable job to miserable job and trying sales and being really bad at it because I've learned less than not being too aggressive. Um, so like I-, I learned to not be too aggressive slash assertive and then went to sales. That worked <laughs> awesome. That was great. <laughs> but then came, then came the pandemic and it blew up the last job I was doing. It technically a 1099, so technically a business, but really a job because I was following someone else's system. Um, and I decided if I'm going to start over, I'm going to do, do it my way. And there is a path for me. I'm going to figure it out. I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, I was inspired by, you know, down here in the States, we got PPP money, the payroll protection program. And if you had a business operating in 2019, I think it was, then you could get two and a half months of whatever your payroll was. And if you're a sole proprietor, anything you made counts as payroll. And the, the restriction was you had to use it for payroll, which meant I had to give it to myself. <laughs> Greatest restriction ever. Like okay. I couldn't buy anything with it. I could only <laughs> put it in my pocket. Um, I could take it out of my pocket and put it back in the business, but I had mm-hmm. to put it in my pocket first. Um, so enriched with that, I said, all right, let's give this a shot. Figure out what I'm going to do. Tried coaching. It kind of worked, except I didn't actually know enough yet. <laughs> and, um, but spent 2021 uh, driving Uber and DoorDash to pay my bills until I finally figured out that I could get paid for making introductions. Um, cause I, and I, and that's what I, I made the realization that I, I mentioned earlier, getting back to so actually remember how I started, um, getting hey. back to the beginning that I'm really good at two things can making connections and expression, um, that I kept meeting with people. Like I should have been building a course or I should have been building a website, but I couldn't cause my calendar was full of one-to-ones. And I kept saying, well, I need to buckle down. I need to be more serious. I need to block out more time on my calendar. Stop having fun meeting people. And, you know, these are pretty cool people to meet. Um, right. But, yeah, stop having fun meeting people and do the real serious work of a business. And finally, uh, I had a conversation with Phil Paluccia, who's the host of Billionaires and Boxers. And he said, you know, Michael, some people get paid to make introductions. And I was like, wait, what? I could keep meeting people all day and get paid for it? That's like finding out some people get paid to drink beer. Right. And in fact, like I could probably more consistently meet people all day than drink beer all day. So that's even better than finding out people get paid to drink beer. And there so, are people that get paid to drink beer, by the way. They do. But I feel like that there's a limit on how long you can do that. Or how much you can drink in a given day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no limit to how much I, I could totally just do one-to-ones all day long and love it but you you bring up a fantastic point and i think it's a a foray whether we happenstanced into this or not or if this was your plan your evil plan the whole time was to convince me that this was a casual conversation we were just organically having it yeah and really it was a plot but that's okay i assure you i do not plot that takes way <laughs> that is well outside my zone of genius <laughs> The whole idea or notion that when we're allowed to um, identify or express our genius without any pressure or constraint, it's like, just do whatever you want. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Just do whatever you want. It's like, here's the park guidelines. You can ride whatever you want. You have a full pass to anything. Mm -hmm. Go and do what you love to do. And the majority of people aren't given that opportunity to be able to see until later in life that that thing that is so easy for them, that it's mm-hmm. like a water in or a fish inhaling water kind of thing. <clears throat> we think we have to jump out 
and breathe air. And it's like, no, <laughs> just, mm -hmm. your body is built to take the water in, get the oxygen yep. out and just do you. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. And, and that's your magic sauce. And it's so hard for people to find that because they're always being told you should do this. You have to do yep, this. Yep, you don't yep. fit in here. You, and I love it that you not only get paid to, <clears throat> to do those things that you're good at, you talk to people all day and uh, disturb the waters, which is <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Well, and, and so one of the things that did, did hold me back earlier um, was I was starting to discover these things. You know, I was meeting all these amazing entrepreneurs, successful people, learning all these things. Um, and even when I was still driving Uber, I was living a pretty good life. Um, I remember at one point thinking, if my business ever takes off, I just coach, you know, I podcast and coach for free and make my living driving Uber, which Uber is driving around, meeting interesting people and listening to podcasts and music for 30 bucks an hour. Like that's not work. It's not um, R&D. Yeah, that, that, that's not in the same category as like being at McDonald's. Um, that, that's, that's not a job. That's a thing. And I get make money for that. Cool. So I realized if like, that's where I am, like, okay, I could be stuck here 40 years. I'll be fine. I'd be, I'd be okay with that outcome. Um, and so I was starting to try to help my friends because I'm living a better life. I'm more comfortable and they're still struggling. They're still making minimum wage. They're still wondering how they're going to pay their rent. You know, they get a flat tire and they might lose their job. And like, they're all on the edge. I'm like, hey, I can help you. And they, one, didn't have any money. So even if I did have a program, they couldn't afford it. And two, I offered to help them for free and they wouldn't receive it because they weren't ready to receive that message. And also I wasn't exactly, you know, I wasn't like, look at me, how amazing my life is. I was working seven days a week. I was driving Uber, which is not prestigious. Although I had a pretty good life. I couldn't be like, look at me, I'm an Uber driver. My life's amazing. So, but now, so once I finally turned away from that, because you trying to help broke people is not a great business model. Um, so I turned to working with people who have money because clients who have money are often able to pay a lot more money than people who don't have money. Crazy how that works. And, you know, the, the kind of clients who think in thousands, not like ones and tens, um, tends to create a lot more opportunity. And, you know, with my business, it's based on the idea of one introduction to my clients. They could, they could make 10, 20, $50,000 from one introduction and I could make five, 10, 15 a month. So mm. pretty easy sell uh, when, when I, you know, talk to them about it. So once I got to that point, you know, now that I have a six-figure business, now when I go back and talk to my friends and I say, hey, here's how this works, more and more of them are like, wait, at first they are resistant. They're like, oh, yeah, I've tried that, whatever. And they're like, wait, 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 sorry, I wasn't listening. Say again what you said <laughs> about the opportunity. So I have a mission now because, you know, we have the, the labor shortage, um, which is that a Canadian phenomenon too? I, I don't know. I'm not in corporate. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so in the U.S., people are talking all about the labor shortage. Yep. You know, everything from McDonald's up to corporate to everywhere. We can't. Nobody wants to work anymore mm -hmm. because nobody wants to work for crappy wages in a crappy environment anymore because they're discovering entrepreneurship and gig work. So my mission is by the beginning of 2024 to have made the labor shortage ten people worse. <laughs> I want to help ten people get out of their crappy jobs and into the place they're meant to be. And you know, to, to your point that you're making about how if you do the thing you're meant to do, you know, stop trying to breathe air, you're a fish. Um, I'm actually finding it relatively simple once I can convince people you can do the thing you're meant to do. And 
Um, so, you know, one of my friends who I've known for, for years, she actually one of my first coaching clients, but she paid in trade rather than in, uh, in money. She couldn't afford it. Um, she is now a VA and I've connected her to a number of different people. Um, some of whom we know in common and she is very close to be able to go full-time at that and leave her, her retail job and do this. And the, like, this is something she's truly gifted at. She's an amazing editor. That's how I first discovered her skills. She edited my book in trade and when she wrote, rewrote sections, they sounded better than what I wrote. Um, so then I hired her to, to write the copy for my podcast episodes. Um, and she's going to be doing more stuff like that. So I started making introductions for her and boom, she's going to be, she's about to replace her income. And then of course, entrepreneurship. Um, but then I talk to other people and find out, you know, once I get them out of the mindset of how can I make more at my job, which is a job they got into, not because they like it, but because it's what they stumbled into. And instead to how, you know, what do I want to do? And, you know, what is, what is the water you breathe as a fish? Um, what is the thing you're naturally inclined to? And now who has money to pay for it? And now how do I get them to give me their money? And that's, you know, that was it with Network Concierge. I make connections all day long. At this, I keep a running tally that goes back to the beginning of November. And I'm at 930 introductions I've made since November. Nice. Um, so apparently that's a lot. <laughs> I guess most people don't make, what would that be, 100 and, 140 a month or something? I guess that's more than most people make. I would think um, so. I don't think most okay. people know that many people like to name. Like I may have 5,000 followers on Facebook, but I don't really have a clue who... 4,000 of them actually are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and of course, 900 connections, there's probably, I don't know, maybe a hundred and something unique individuals in that 900 because I've mm -hmm. made multiple introductions for, for individual people. Um, but, you know, making connections, but I probably, I wasn't tracking it before, but I probably made not too many fewer in the eight months prior to that before I was doing it as a business because just, it's what I do. And then it's a matter of someone has money. Mm -hmm. Remember when I, when I realized that the median income in the United States or that GDP per capita is $67,000 a year, mm -hmm. which means if you're making less than $67,000 a year, somebody else has that money. So if you're making 37,000, there's $30,000 that is your share of the economy that's in someone else's pocket. So figure out who it is and figure out what makes them want to give it to you. And they and, do want to give it to you. I used yep. to know a guy who whose job was to network like you do um, on an international scale. And mm -hmm. he sold basically used drilling rigs. Mm. And it's just, that was his job. I mean, now I think you would just put it on, you know, Craigslist or something. <laughs> yeah, there's still probably I'm really sure how you get rid of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Cause there's, there's actually a huge challenge. Um, I mean, you see it in the, in the big data space. It's like, you have all the information in the world, now what do you do with it? Um, and we're seeing that with the internet. So, you know, so you have all the information in the world, but there's so much noise that there is still probably a place for, um, for someone who, who just specializes in making connections for used drilling rigs. Um, in fact, when you said that, I'm like, I probably know two people who'd want to meet him if he's still doing that. Um, you know, to find right? the opportunities. Because, okay, if you searched it, well, is this still... Oh, is it legitimate? Because um, whenever you see a listing for something super high ticket, like, can you trust it? Right. Who is this person? Where are they coming from? What's their background? Um, I recently met someone who, uh, who I, I've nicknamed the guy who knows a bank because he does what I do, but for financing. So yeah. anything from a mortgage to a hard money loan to uh, personal financing, business financing, he just has a comprehensive Rolodex 
of financing sources um, for all kinds of financing, any kind of structure you might need, he's got someone for it. And so, and then he can offer a commission for referrals. Mm -hmm. um, and thus he makes a network of networkers who find people who need money. And so now if I run across anyone who says, I need anything from a business loan to a mortgage to, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of people, if you need a mortgage, you go to the local bank, you get a mortgage, but sometimes it's some other situation where uh, you, you need to your business credit to be taken into account or something funky. That's where he comes in, can mm -hmm. make the connection to that right financial institution, because sure, I'm sure every partner he has, has a website and has, would be found in the internet if you know what you're looking for. But every person I've ever introduced had a LinkedIn page. So, you know, I, I, I've never introduced someone to like the secret hermit who lives on the mountain who takes a password to reach them. <laughs> every person I've ever introduced wants to meet people. It's just, there's 8 billion people in the world. You want to meet the right people. You don't want to meet all of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there, there's a, a value in that. And, and also there's so many, there's so many jobs that you'd just be like, that's a job? Really? Right. Because there's so many things that need to be done. If you look at a, a corporate org chart, like you walk into an office and you see all the cubicles, you're like, what do all these people do? Because mm -hmm. any complex process requires a lot of people to do all these different, you know, someone needs to uh, proofread the spreadsheets that go into the thing. Someone needs to, I don't even know what happens in corporate either, but <laughs> But but yeah, you know, there's, <laughs> there's all these different little little roles in there, and then you'll meet an entrepreneur, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, I like uh, you know, I discovered title insurance was, which mm -hmm. is there's companies, all they do is they provide insurance against the possibility that the title of your property isn't actually clear. So even though you've done the research, you bought the house, but the person who sold it to you didn't actually fully own it, even though they thought they did. Um, because, because real estate deeds are just a series of transactions. Like there's not actually a big register of everyone who owns everything, even though you think there is. I thought that was what registries there, did. There, there may be, but that's actually a summary <laughs> of a series of transactions. Oh. So, so that's that the registry is generally the thing until someone's like, well, actually I have this transaction from 1897 that says this, which means this person didn't own it. So this person didn't own it. So like there's this niche space in real estate of title insurance and title research wow. to make sure that the registry is right. Um, and, you know, ex extrapolate that across every industry and every state and every province and every town. There's a lot mm -hmm. of places for people to fit in. And, and, you know, every home transaction is a 200 to million dollar transaction. Right. And if you can take half a percent of those or 10th of a percent, of a $200,000 transaction, you can make a few bucks. There sounds like there's a blockchain opportunity in there somewhere. There probably is. <laughs> so talk to me about your, you have a podcast with a big bird in it. <laughs> Neurodiversity. I'm assuming you don't mean superpowers. I, I yeah, no, I can, I, I can grapple that one. I'm sure um, you know the word superpowers because <laughs> it's clearly a concept you're familiar with. So the neurodiversity Unto it as a thing. What is the semantic definition of that? So neurodiversity is a, uh, a somewhat nebulous word that's expanded meaning over time. It used to mean just autism spectrum. Then it expanded to mean ADHD and autism. And then it, um, uh, as I use it, it's any thing that makes your brain such that you don't see the world the same as other people. Um, so I got to introduce you to a guy. You will love him. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I've discovered a lot of people in the entrepreneurial space fit into yep. this description. Um, but so, so you know, start with autism and ADHD um, to give you kind of a general concept, but yep. then dyslexia, chronic depression, bipolar. Uh, one of the people I'll be interviewing has, uh, I, I believe the term for it is chronic, um, chronic suicidal ideation or something like that. Um, but, but, you know, he has a fascinating story because with chronic suicidal ideation or whatever the actual clinical name is, um, in his, like, suicide is always on his mind. It's always yeah. a possibility. Yeah. So the way he describes it is your car breaks down, you know, what are your options? Well, for most people, it's, I don't know, get it fixed, get a new car, walk, take the bus. Well, he's always got, or kill yourself, right which, in front of sounds a car. Really, you know, which sounds really morbid. But what mm -hmm. it meant was when he hit a point in his life, when he was in a terrible job, in the wrong marriage, as everything was wrong, but he was stuck there. Most people stay there because like, oh my God, what if I leave and I fail? His thought was, what if I leave and I fail? Kill myself or kill myself now. Um, and he simply followed that. You know, I don't know if you saw the movie, uh, Yes Man, Yes Man mm -hmm. with John Kerry. Yep. Oh, J John Kerry, Jim Kerry. Jim Kerry. Um, or John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it it, it kind of led him on that career trajectory because every time he had a, you know, a huge decision to make, he'd be like, what's the worst that'll happen? Um, so he took all these chances and when you're willing to take chances, you know, reasonable chances, good things tend to happen. So he ended up being a touring comedian. He ended up writing for some, you know, national shows. He's been on, he's had done seven TEDx talks. Um, and it's all because he has a condition that most people think would be debilitating actually once he you know managed to leverage it as a superpower now i'm i imagine it's probably not fun to have you know if you were sitting there but before you're born and god's like all right so what would you like yourself to be like oh i'd like chronic suicidal ideation people probably wouldn't choose it but there's so many things like that whether it's autism or adhd or dyslexia or whatever that that there's a superpower component and a kryptonite component right uh and if you can learn to minimize the kryptonite and maximize the superpower, you win. So, you know, the, the um, one person I know has, has autism, that's Asperger's, so um, what it is sometimes called high-functioning autism. I think um, Asperger and Tourette's are my favorite disorders. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but so, so with Asperger's, what that, the, the superpower part is yep. he can look at any, any business deal and immediately the uh, solid deal or not, what can mm -hmm. be tweaked, you know, you can look at any situation and be like, there's a million bucks right there. I'm going to go take it. Anyone else walking by is like, I don't, what do you, you're looking at warehouses. What are you seeing? He's like right there, a million dollars. Um, his kryptonite was he wasn't good at reading people or systems. So mm -hmm. first time, first time he made millions, he ran afoul of regulations and the government took all his money. Second time he made millions, his partner stole all his money because he didn't have a deal in place and didn't realize he was being lied to. Then he learned he had Asperger's, learned what his you know, what his deficiencies were and how to compensate. Yep. Next time he made millions, he kept it nice. because he learned how to maintain the superpower. Um, and so the, the narrative on neurodiversity is very much around disability and struggle. And going back to what we're talking about school, teachers want, want, you, want everyone to fit in the square hole. So you got to be a square peg. If you're, if you're a round peg, well, we're going to file that down until you start getting a little more squarish. And so if you have ADHD and you're in school or you have, have autism or you know, Asperger's, which is the biggest way it manifests is not being able to read social situations. 
and kids are freaking mean. Right. So you go through life thinking you're a loser, a failure. Mm -hmm. You know, at best, if you're lucky, you might be able to get a mediocre office job. You know, we aspire to get you to, to be able to work at Target or Walmart. And I'm like, that's not success. That's less failing. Um, and that's what you're told for 20 years is maybe if we work really hard and we're lucky, we can overcome your challenges and you can live a normal life. Ugh. Who the that fuck wants like, a normal life? I mean, yeah, that sounds not, terrible. That sounds like a death sentence. Because the, the narratives end at 20. They're right. like, and you graduated college. Yay, Yay. we win. And I'm like, okay, that's when the story starts. Like college understand that. They call it commencement because <laughs> it's when you're beginning mm -hmm. your life. You know, you're, into the, you're out of the prologue and now can actually start the story. So there's not enough stories sharing the success stories about, about why it's awesome. I, I say part of the mission with the Neurodiversity Superpowers podcast is that someone will listen to it and say, oh man, ADHD sounds awesome. I wish I had ADHD. Right? Why, do I have, why do I have to be neurotypical? That's not fair. I want autism. That sounds amazing. Um, and, and, you know, it is, it, it, it would be a silly narrative if there weren't a counter narrative I was trying to counter. Um, but I'm going to that extreme because the narrative is so much of disability. And in the corporate world, it's, you know, the right thing and the good thing is to accommodate your neurodiverse employees, which the boss hears as you should spend money for your broken team members so they can keep up with your normal team members. Instead, yeah. you've got Superman on your team. You shouldn't put him in the office with kryptonite walls. Right. If you put him in the office that didn't have kryptonite walls, he'd be Superman. But you're putting him in the kryptonite room. Mm -hmm. So he can barely move. I also saw a, um, a documentary once. It was a super short one. There's mm -hmm. a guy in Calgary here who ran a company. And God, that's got to be like the 90s. I would think. Um, and basically what he did was hire a whole bunch of people with um, kind of spectrum autism mm -hmm. that were really good at a certain thing. So yep. one might be good at really good at finding patterns. One was really good at doing accounting. One was really, and they just got him a job doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And they were faster, better than like teams of six. Yes. So they got paid, you know, by the workload that they got done, not by the hour. Yep. And they got the liberty of having, you know, being in a room with nobody else in there and saying, you know, don't knock on the door, don't <laughs> slide mm -hmm. food under the, and just gave them the environment that they needed so that they could do the, the magic that they did. Yeah. I, got to find out who that was and connect him with you too. Yeah, that, that'd be, yeah, I, I know I heard a story similar to that. And that's, that's kind of the, that's some of that narrative, neurodiversity superpowers message for the corporate world is well, yeah. this, this isn't about doing the right things, but making money. You know, if, if you've Come got on, someone who's, who's an autistic engineer and, you know, engineering is their strengths yep. and, but their weaknesses, they hate people or they hate people. People are exhausted. Not they hate people, but engaging with people is exhausting. <laughs> but then your, your company, cause you're all about engagement and team and generative thinking. So you got to go to the morning meetings so we can share our ideas. And then you got to go to the one o'clock meeting and check in and see how you're doing. And of course you got to come to the end of the day meeting too. And then you wonder why this guy is useless because it takes <laughs> okay. him two hours to decompress from any social interaction and you shove them in a meeting for 45 minutes, three times a day. Whereas if you took the meetings away and let them work, 
he's the guy who at 5 p.m. you'd leave and be like, Bob, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm just I'm finishing this up. And you come in at 9 a.m. and Bob's sitting there at his computer still working. And you're like, Bob, did you leave your chair? <laughs> uh, uh, I, yeah. I guess not. No. Should, should I? I don't know um, what time is it. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be perfectly happy to you know, work all night. He'd probably never remember to ask for a raise because he's too happy, too busy working. Um, and all you have to do is not make him do the crap he doesn't like. And well, isn't that true for everybody, really? Yeah. I mean, I well, don't really understand most business organizations where by they say, oh, I hired you to do this job. This is your job. Do this job. Yep. My first question is, what do you love to do? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, I, I couldn't care less why you applied for this job. What do you absolutely love to do? Yep. And how do we take that and and give you a, a position doing that thing? Because yep. somebody who loves doing that is going to be way more effective at it than somebody that's good at it, but hates it. I, I actually, uh, George Shepard, who runs 360 Summits, he's telling mm-hmm. me that he um, gave his entire team uh, skills inventories or one of those assessments a lot, like, what are you great at? What do you love doing? Yep. He, he took the assessments, looked at what everyone was great at, looked at what everyone was doing, doing. and there's a massive mismatch because, you know, they got hired for, I need this, so we hire for this. He resorted his whole staff, like half the staff changed roles entirely, and the productivity went through the roof nice. because because you had you know you had people in totally wrong roles, and it seemed like they should be and you know they they could do them, they were getting them done, but it was it was a struggle. And it's, it's funny for me as an entrepreneur because I have now gotten to the point where I basically don't do things I don't like doing. So I've had a couple times where I've gotten clients have taken me on to do something that was out of my zone of genius. And I'd be like, okay, all right, I, I can, I can make myself do this, right? And I couldn't. Um, what, one of my clients, part of the, the role involved like calling a few hundred people. And I've done sales. I know how to pick up the phone and call hundreds of people. And I went to do it. And I, was, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, I would make two calls and be like, I, I can't. I, I ended up bringing in someone else, found a friend of mine, be like, hey, you're good at calling people, right? You want? And, and basically, <laughs> gave, subcontracted your job. I gave that person like a decent chunk of what I was going to get paid. Because that was actually a key part of the role. I'm like, I just can't bring myself to do it. Like I'm in such an entrepreneurial space and so much saying I want to work in my zone of genius that, and it worked out great because it was actually, it was super simple work. Like I was able to train her over Facebook messenger and be like, Hey, here's what you need to say. Here's what we're trying to get out of them. Here's this number. She's like, is that it? I'm like, that's it. That's all I need. Well, I just need a lot of it. And she's like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And a few days in, she's like, this is super fun. Do you know other people who need this work? So I'm going to be connecting her to other people who might need that work. But, but yeah, you know, I, I'm now to the point where if it's something like that, I mean, I, I have a, a no, no pitch, no close sales strategy for my business. Um, so with my network and concierge, I have, I have not overcome a single objection. I have not asked a single obligating question. Um, now I explain it when I have the conversation, I say, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I often get the question, well, how much does that cost? And I tell them what it costs. Um, and then they ask maybe other questions and I answer them. And then they might ask a question like, so how would I hire you? And I'd say this link, I'm going to put it in the chat. And if you would like to work with me, uh, the fact that I put the link in the chat means I think that I'd like to work with you. If you'd like to work with me, you click on that link. There's a green button. You click on it. You put your credit card in and you'll be working. we'll be working together. And that's the close. Um, nice. is letting them do it because I don't want to work with someone that I had to convince to work with me. If they don't see the value, I don't want to be reclosing them three weeks from now <laughs> so because they forgot the objection. And over and over again. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, this has been a blast. <laughs> we do have to stop at some time. I know it's crazy. What? But what if so? I know. Right? Plenty of room. <laughs> <laughs> so how do people start their journey with you? If they're like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell you do or why I want to do it, but I want to get a hold of you. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I do either, but uh, they should go to guy who knows and on there, I have cleverly made a list of all the things I'm doing, although I need to update it again. But I've cleverly made a list of all the things I'm doing. And they can get a copy of my book, which tells my story from when I started as a real networker up to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and they can get it for free. So they can put their name and email right at the top there, and they'll get an email with the book. And if they then reply, send me the audiobook to that email. I'll send them the audiobook and they can no listen way. to my beautiful voice read my book to them, which I have been told is a very enjoyable experience. By your so. wife. No, <laughs> She's actually has not listened to my audiobook, interestingly enough. But she's well, also super introverted and does not want to read a book about networking. <laughs> she got me for that. She doesn't need to network. She's got me. <laughs> you know, exactly. She's going to ask you, hey. She made and that's one how she got on the show too. The <laughs> she better get her butt on here because she's got some awesome stuff I want to make public. That yes. is awesome. Michael, you have been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I know how valuable it is. Any last words for our peeps? Uh, so my, I will share the advice, which is... Um, probably totally out of alignment and everything that we talked about, but <laughs> since I do networking and teach it, if you know at least 10 people, you have a network and can be a connector. So don't let the excuse of, I don't know enough people to be a connector, stop you from connecting. Just decide, I want to connect people and be a helpful, helpful person. And then start making introductions and boom, you're a connector. Nice. I love it. Awesome. This is Michelle Nedelec, peeps. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcaster app so that we can help you get it up and keep it up when you need me. We love being here for you. Thank you for listening to the Little Blue Pill for Business podcast with your mistress in business, Michelle Nedelec. Why are you still here? Go to littlebluepillforbusiness.com and get your goodies. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to share it with somebody else that you know would enjoy getting it up in business after you subscribe to the podcast, of course, so you won't miss any future episodes. Now, check the notes for links. Oh, and only tell your wife if she's into this, you know, entrepreneurship. And I'll see you both on the other side.